warm welcome to the centre-left politics podcast hosted hosted by myself carl quilliam and my co-host malcolm clark please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast this week we're going to cover the fallout from the met police expressing regret at the arrest of six anti-monarchists on coronation day uh, could Labour do a deal with the SNP? I think I know the answer to that one. Is it time to leave Parliament for good? Uh, the end of no-fault evictions and Keir Starmer's Chambers of Commerce speech. But before we get into all of that, how has your week been so far, Malcolm? Not bad, Carl. Uh, nice to see you again. Uh, these come around very quick. I did say in another meeting today, that I wanted to steward's inquiry on on how quick Thursday had come round again, uh, because I, I quite often it creeps up on me on these. So, uh, yeah, week's been good. Uh, went down to Parliament for a one-day flying visit, um, and I remember why I do two-day visits, because it was a, a long. There's currently train engineering going on between Doncaster and Peterborough. So anyone who is thinking of doing the East Coast Main Line straight to London, you can still do it, but it takes an extra hour and a half I think to get there so they've got to go through uh, Gainsborough, Lincoln, uh, Spalding to Peterborough which is nice big semicircle around the east so uh, I did that I got the 810 train got into midday I was back on the train at 7 in the evening and back home by half 11 got into Durham about quarter to 11 so yeah a long day and I slept very well so feel good today uh, yeah, it's always nice to come down to London. Got a couple of pictures of Big Ben, which is just, you know, all good. Uh, we are going to chat about the state of Parliament. Not politics, but actually Parliament. Uh, so that'll be a nice little chat. Um, but yeah, all good, and I'm glad to be here. And uh, a good agenda. Looking forward to it. <laughs> how, how, was the, how were the trains? Because I know that the... Uh, if, well, I almost had it a few weeks ago. One of my friends had it where Doncaster... You get a diversion. Uh, one of my friends had to get a replacement bus back to Halifax. Uh, How are you? <laughs> well, people may know it's not on our agenda to talk about, but um, the Trans Pennine Express, we did mention it, has been taken back into uh, special measures of uh, operator of last resort. I was getting pleased myself remembering that. Uh, so they've had the franchise taken off them, but I do notice when I go quite regularly on the trains now, uh, which is definitely the perk of, of working remotely and coming to London. I, I do love the trains. Um, although it's slightly different because you get the nicer Zuma trains, you know, right down to London on the East Coast Main Line. So quite luxurious given, you know, other trains that you can get on. Um, but yeah, the, the, the journey was fine. The only weird thing was on, on the way back, um, because there's less trains running, it was absolutely full. And there was some sort of cancellation where they said to people, just get on this train respect the seat reservations get on this train but i'm telling you my coach c coach c absolutely boiling to the point of like genuinely uncomfortable and i went <laughs> to for, went to the bathroom for it was the wc and i was hit with this lovely blast of cool air as a dortmund it was lovely but going back in i was like oh my god and i don't know what it was we even asked the train people as the heat nons they said no which is really weird, but uh, yeah, all good. But I still noticed just on the Trans Pennines point, when I was looking at the board to see if my train was delayed, Touch would have had a good run for the last year. I think I've got away with it. Is some of their trains were still cancelled at short notice, and it really is chaotic. So they've definitely done right in 
taking it into special measures, I think it's called. Well, it's not special measures as such, it's operator of last resort. But it basically means the government's now in control of them. Um, and they're going to be looking to improve it because if you go on that Transpennine service, you're going to encounter delays and cancellations at the minute. So there's a lot of improvement they need to make. Well, luckily, we've got a government that's right on top of things at the moment, and I'm sure they're going to sort it out quick, smart. It'll be interesting <laughs> to see how they fare with it because there are genuinely problems. And I think being really fair about these things, it'll be interesting to see what, what any government can do because they're going to need... And it's again, it's going to be the civil service, isn't it? It's not generally going to be the, the politicians, but how they actually deal with this will be a real test of how, how well they can take on something like this. Because the people who operate these are are professionals, you know, they've got experience in the of doing these services, and you just wonder the sort of type of experience that people have got in the civil service that will now be dealing with this. I'm sure they'll do good. It'll just be interesting to see how quickly, if at all, things improve. Yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not putting any money on it right now, if I'm honest. I'm going to run that service, thankfully. You know. I don't. Offer, I think the only. But sometimes, uh, when I go down to a client in Derbyshire, I sometimes do use that service, and I've been lucky so far, and I'll be using it next month. So, quick improvements, please, <laughs> if anyone's listening in. <laughs> I've jinxed it now, haven't I? By saying everything's normally okay. Uh, yeah. Um... How, how's your week been? I remember to ask. <laughs> Eventually, got around to it. I, I couldn't have possibly lived myself if I didn't ask you again in another week because I think you know I'm causing genuine upset here. But yes, how's your week been, Carl? This is Tell me everything. Gonna, this is going to be the. going to be the end of the podcast. It's just one too many times. It took me a bit. Logs out. <laughs> in a huff. Uh, yeah, it's been it's been, it's been all right. Um, yeah, uh, weekend uh, went out for a curry. That was, you know, we got a babysitter. Um, went out for a curry. I mean, that was it. Didn't do anything else. But it's still nice to go out, go out have some food. Uh, and then on Sunday we went to uh, a fair. And um, my, luckily for me, so uh, normally I'm the one that gets dragged on the fun house at the fair. And I don't really like the fun house at the fair, <laughs> if I'm honest. It's a bit rubbish. Um, so, But luckily, my brother was there, and my cousin had come down from Leeds as well. So they got to take turns in being dragged around the fun house and going down one of those tube slides that's like in the, like in a, re- it had a really kind of tight turn on it. And it was I'd really. I've still been there. Jammed. It was, no, no, I mean, it was, it's, well, because the thing is, you, like, because she was just, she was too young to go, they wouldn't let her go on her, on her own. She wouldn't have gone on her own, she wouldn't have gone on her own anyway, but they wouldn't let her to go on her yeah. own. And it was, the slide was a bit too small for an adult, but it was the only, it's the only way to get out, because you go, you, it's one way all the way around. So, you, but at the end, you get stuck in this queue to get down this slide that's, like, just slightly too tight for a grown-up. So my brother had to basically like crawl out of the bottom because he's bigger than me as well. <laughs> crawl out of the bottom of it, but you know, she had a good time. So as long as she and had I, a good time, that's all. And I, no, no, no. As long as she had a good time, and I didn't have to do it. That's what I'm Two criteria, check, check. <laughs> Sunday was fun. Yeah. Um, Excellent. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, and yeah, otherwise a good week. But yeah, we should probably talk about whatever it is we're here to talk about. Politics, Politics. Well, yeah. possible. Yeah. 
<laughs> so um, you probably know more about this than me, but uh, apparently the Met Police has expressed regret at the arrest of six people on Coronation Street. Uh, Coronation, Coronation Street. Street. <laughs> <laughs> He's looking at a different story here. Sorry, yeah, no. Uh, Roy's been taken away, and is he still on it? I don't know. I don't know. I've never watched him for years. He used to run the cafe a long time ago. Yeah, uh, I think he's retired now. Fine, retired from the cafe. Shout out to Roy Crop. Six people on Coronation Day. Republic's <laughs> <laughs> um, chief executive Graham Smith is among those arrested. Uh, he's apparently received an apology. But as and as confirmed, he will take legal action. Yeah, didn't accept uh, it. Well, yeah, well, fair enough. Um, so, yeah, and apparently the Met said the arrests were initially authorised due to their fear clasps from cases could be used to lock on. Yeah, it was all about locking on. Was the whole thing, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and there was it wasn't there's there's been another one. There was some people that was it the day before. Um, but as well, which I, I don't know enough about it, so I probably shouldn't talk about it. But they had, yeah, there was there was a group of women that were um, sort of taken away the day before as well, and there's been some issues around that. Yeah. Um, I'll try and Google it while while yeah. we're talking. So yeah, no, but I haven't heard that one. But yeah, sorry, carry on your summary. I'll come in a sec. Um, well, yeah, I mean, just I think the Republic said that the police were aware of the plans. I mean, it was talked about, I think, on Bargate News for You as well um, on Friday. Um, so yeah, they they should they would they'd been notified in advance, and still the police decided that um, they were too much of a risk. Didn't want them to ruin the ruin the coronation. Yeah, I mean, I've got a kind of a, you know, I've been thinking about this on a, <clears throat> a practical level, and actually my brother-in-law's brother, um, who I've never quite been able to work out if he's my brother-in-law as well or not, I don't think he is, um, <laughs> is, has been a Met officer since, I think, 2005. So he's been a, about 18 years he's been down in the Met. Don't see him very often. <clears throat> I think he's the next rank up from sort of the lowest rank. He's never gone very far. Um, but he, uh, I was thinking about it from like the perspective of if I was an officer on the front line and one of the amendments actually that I had been pushing, I came up with that idea. I'm sure I wasn't the only person to do it. Apologies, I've got a bit of a frog in my throat today. Um, is I was thinking about like what would you do as a servant officer on the front line? You're responsible for going out there and like I said, I wanted the amendment to be that these actions that they have, these proactive actions to intervene before someone does something, would have to be signed off by either the police and crime commissioner or one of the senior chief constables. <clears throat> the inference being that they're aware of it, they feel it's substantial enough, and that there's come back that basically if it does kick off, it's not the officer's butts are on the line, it's the senior officer can say, well, I said it was okay. Without that what you have is put yourself in the position, I would ask listeners to put themselves in the position of a, of a serving officer on the front line, not particularly high rank, so they're having to account for their actions afterwards. They come up to the, the van that they saw that had all the signs in, all the paraphernalia of protest that Republic were going to use that day for whatever they were doing. And okay, they said they had conversations, but they're looking at this van and they see them there 
it's the coronation day. It's the biggest operation since, you know, almost ever in terms of certainly in the careers of all the officers there, all the senior officers. And what they're wanting is it to go smoothly. So what do they do? If the, Now imagine if the police officers had looked at all this gear and said, yeah, go on, off you go. And then something happens where they accost the Jubilee carriage, coronation carriage, whatever the hell it's called, um, and, and they get this very visual protest moment that everybody then uses. Somebody's going to go up to these officers afterwards and say, what happened? You were there. Why didn't you arrest them? So what they've ended up doing is thinking, what's the easiest way forward? Just get rid of them. Just take take them out of the way. Arrest them. They shouldn't be there. They've talked about clasps. I mean, yeah, okay. To me, what's happened is, as police officers have thought, right, and history bears this out now, we can have a row afterwards based on should we have arrested them, but the coronation went off okay. So we're wearing the clear in terms of we can battle it out whether we should have arrested them. Graham Smith didn't do anything because he wasn't there to do it. Now, I'm not saying it's right, but I think this is the problem when you empower people who then have to account for their actions later. Because if the chief constables got carpeted, they would have gone to the officers and said, why didn't you do something? You know, so, yeah. and, And again, whilst I fully expect these conversations have taken place, and I'll bring my comments to an end here, Carl. <laughs> what if they did something else? The first thing the police would have said was, you know, you walked into a meeting and said, what happened? And he said, they told me they weren't going to do that. And you believed them? Yeah. There you go. I mean, to me, it was a, <laughs> it was a, a means to an end to bring about the outcome they wanted. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's lots of lots to unpack. Um, yeah. the, the, before I do that, though, I'll I'll reference the thing that uh, I was talking about, but didn't know all the details of. Um, so the police have also been criticised uh, because they uh, arrested some volunteers um, around two a.m. in the morning of the Saturday, who were handing out rape alarms. Um, oh yes, I remember. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and I think uh, from so this isn't the I haven't this isn't from what I'm reading now, but I'd seen the kind of follow up story, which I think is what prompted it. And they were they were obviously their police volunteers doing they were they're volunteering working with the police on this, and they had high vis on with like a a police logo on it, but even so, were still taken away, which you know is just fully not on, um, and is to your point about the kind of the the for the republic side of things on the day uh, i think very much the the balance of the met's reputation is very very much swings the other way when it's a group of women handing out rape alarms um and i really can't see what anyone was thinking in that situation um but yeah i i don't know i but I guess the, from your bit, I think, and the Republic protests, I think there's a few different things. One, I think I don't agree particularly with the law. I think you know, it's, it's heavy-handed. Um, I can see exactly from a kind of police officer's perspective with that law having just come in um, and you know being on the day of the coronation, why they would you know make that judgment. Um, but I mean, generally, I mean, sort of aside from all of that, um, there's a kind of inconvenience for Graham and the Republic lot for being arrested. But actually, this is the first thing that they've done 
in as far as I'm aware, his entire tenure as heading up Republic, where anyone's ever heard of anything that they've done. So actually, from their perspective, it's quite whatever had happened, whether you know if they'd managed to protest in the way that they wanted. Um, uh, you know, they may not have got the level of coverage that they've got. Uh, you know, they've got on Havagani's view, they've got loads of kind of press coverage. So, I mean, I would say from a Republic perspective, like fair play, <laughs> you know, it's taken. So, I, I, so I've met Graham. Um, I, I, when I was doing a debating society at university, and um, I was not very good at debating, just to underline, underline this before I tell this little bit of this story. Um, there was a he came to the university and I was on his team. I was on his debate team uh, arguing for a republic. Um, and we did not win. <laughs> he was not very good. Um, and I was definitely a sub. I mean, I, I did one debating competition when I was at university. I came 73 out of 73 in that, in that debating competition. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> I know. Which is, which is, doubly impressive because my debate partner didn't finish her speech <laughs> and i still came behind her somehow but anyway on the, uh, huge but, injustice um, yeah. but um but yeah and I, so I think you know it's and that was 2006 so i think and he i don't know when he became uh, the chief exec i think it wasn't that long before then maybe a, a year or two so he's been doing the, this job for almost 20 years um, and this is the first time anyone's heard of him. So I would sort of say on the kind of balance of, uh, you know, everything, I think well done to them for actually getting it, their message out there for once. Yeah, I think, I mean, <clears throat> I suppose what I was saying, and, I, you know, apologies for being long-winded about it, but I think you can understand why, why the police on that day, under those circumstances, were very cautious and took the actions they did. And this is what you get when you give them proactive powers that can be interpreted on a day like this where it's very visible, it's historic. You know, what the police definitely didn't want was a protester glued to the side of the king and queen's carriage, you know, because they'd failed to arrest them when they had, in inverted commas, an opportunity earlier in the day. And, you know, that would have been some really awkward conversations for as you work that up the food chain in the, within the police. So, you know, if I was a copper, I would have probably been thinking, you know, do I just stand here when I see these things happening? And you think in scenarios to your mind because the police are reactive generally, which can be frustrating. You know, if you're, I've got friends who had antisocial behavior issues and they say the police like, do something, you know, I want this sorted out. And the, their answer is, and it's very horrible to hear, give us a ring if something happens, we'll be straight there. you know. But when you give them proactive powers, that fundamentally changes the way the police operates. And it, it leaves room for interpretation. And that interpretation is going to err on the side of caution at the most visible and intense moments, of which this was definitely one of them. And I think that's how we ended up where we have. But I forgot to add it into last week's uh, show, which I thought we'd better do have that conversation I think it's important um, he said he won't accept the apology obviously not because he wants to make the most and as you say Carl I didn't know who he was I didn't really know much about Republic but I certainly do now and in, in that sense it's not been a total failure but from the police's perspective there was it went off without a hitch 
and that's what they were there to do. And I think that's I think that's contributed to how it played out. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, I think, yeah, we probably we can probably move on, can't we, to the uh, next item, which was the um, the moment of the week. I think, as far as I'm concerned, is Keir Starmer's uh, Chamber of Commerce speech, um, <coughs> which I think. Well, uh, it's worth saying that um, there's Chamber of Commerce is big conference this week. Um, Jeremy Hunt also did a sort of interview of which I don't think much. I, I mean, I haven't seen lots of coverage of that particularly. Um, but there's, I guess, there's two bits to Keir's speech at the Chamber of Commerce. One is um, the speech itself and the kind of lead up and the fallout from it. But it's also, it's I think part of the Chambers of Commerce uh, sort of play to be the the leading business body with the with the state that the CBI is in at the moment and it seems to be kind of unraveling <laughs> somewhat uh, you know but it remains to be seen it may, you know they may pull themselves back but there's there's been lots of talk um, well certainly in government and kind of in the business community about kind of what comes next and the chambers of commerce are, are sort of making a big play for it so I think the Typically, the CBI speech for you know whether it's for the prime minister or the leader of the opposition is that is the big one of the year. But I think this one was that bit bigger um, because of that, or it was see it was sort of seen as that and kind of used as that. I think by by Kia, um, he he in advance of it he trailed a piece on. So he did an interview with Times, which was really quite focused on on housing, um, and he. He trailed a basically a, a well, it was building on some of the rhetoric that he's already used in the lead up to and since the local elections, which has all been about bringing back housing targets, getting getting building again, and trying to put the government really on the back foot um, when they're in a position that yeah, house building is struggling at the moment. They're pushing through a big bit of legislation that's going to probably make it worse. They've scrapped housing targets. They're, you know, Rishi Sunak seems to be very much in hock to a group of 50 or 60 backbenchers led by Theresa Villiers who uh, don't want to build anything anywhere. Um, and that was that became quite a big thing. Um, on the day, he said, uh, Labour pledged to back the builders, not the blockers. Which I think was quite a nice line. I've got that line highlighted uh, on my screen now in the speech. Just to, yeah, so it's a big, it was a big statement, definitely. Yeah, definitely, and it and it and it got reported quite widely. Um, and I think it's gone. It's gone really, really. It's, it's gone down really well with. Uh, well, I would say well, all the right people. You know, it's gone down well in the media. It's gone down well with business. Um, and I think it's yeah, at the moment it seems to be exactly where Labour need to be i mean the the caveat to it is i'd be interested in your view as well is that there's been some polling since which sort of suggests that um you know of, of all of the things pe- people want to want more homes they want more affordable homes you know they want more social housing all of these kind of things if you if you poll people uh but quite a big majority don't want building on the green belt um so it's sort of interesting from that perspective that Keir's felt comfortable enough and and he did caveat it to say you know we 
you know, he wants to give local authorities the opportunity to build on green belt. He doesn't want to build on all green belt, just the bits that aren't very nice, blah, 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 blah. But still, it's quite a big statement for a politician to make. Um, the po- and, and again, to sort of, for him to be confident enough in doing that, I think is, is interesting. Um, and Rishi's come back to today and sort of reiterated that he will be protecting the green belt. Uh, as he has always said he would, uh, and to be fair, I mean the Tories have. I don't think have ever sort of moved away from that that kind of rhetoric. At least uh, Boris was very much about protecting the green belt, even when he wasn't doing it. Uh, <laughs> or you know, I mean he was, but you know what I mean. Um, so yeah, um, there was a whole there was a whole lot of other bits to the speech as well. It was a kind of he made some of the kind of wider economic arguments that he's been making. Um, but yeah, I think that the housing thing seems to have been, particularly since the local elections, has been a real, really key point for Labour. And he seems, he feels, he seems to feel very confident in kind of pushing, pushing the government and Rishi Sunak in particular on it. You also said that he was going to um, level the playing fields with the online warehouses, and that probably feeds into um, looking at Amazon. Um, in terms of that impact of how people shop and stuff like that, so there's a lot of, lot of place building and stuff like that in there. I think, um, and how you know, it was it was a good speech worth a read. Um, it's on the labour.org.uk website. If you search for Keir Starmer Chamber of Commerce speech, comes straight up. Um, just on your point about the the building and blockers and stuff like that, Carl. That kind of feeling and interesting. You mentioned the poll in there because. That type of feeling that goes down to a really micro level in a community because if you ask somebody, do you think we should build more homes? The answer is usually yes. If you answer, ask people, do you want to build more homes outside here, where, where, where you currently live, the answer is often very different. So it really does go down to that very, very micro level. And I know we've had Chris, the guest on in the past, Yimby Chris, who was very happy with that statement. And I saw a tweet from him, you know, in full agreement. Um, but when you're elected and you have people uh, very much on the sort of populist side of things talking about, you know, we don't want this build, um, that can often be, be quite quite difficult for a councillor because you can be pressured by quite a relatively small number of people who make a lot of noise. And I've watched, I've said before, I've watched meetings of my local county council. I used to, used to substitute into these committees quite often when I was elected and enjoyed the robust uh, hearings that we used to have I, I remember being told by a councillor when I first started stay away from planning and actually in retrospect I, I wish I'd been more involved in it because it was something I really liked um, but they used to get like say 10 people coming in and the sort of opposition councillors who are now controlling the as a group the council at the moment all would happen was they would speak take the populist position and all of the say 10 people present would raucously applaud and they'd love that and then suddenly they were you know they'd find a way of going with their sort of sentiment that they shouldn't build for whatever reason and and i, I saw that populism repeatedly i don't know you know it's so there it's a risky strategy because at a micro level if people think about it on a micro level they could see that as a little bit worrying in terms of if we strip away their right to object and i don't think labor would say that we're doing that but it'll be interesting to see how they come up with the detail on that if, if they do choose to release that sort of detail but as ever you know Key is in a confident position as you say to be able to make these statements I don't think you would have made a statement like this 
you know, a year and a half ago before we equalised and then took a big lead in the polls. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. And I th- but I think there's probably a bit about it that... I think the the politics of it has shifted because the government is so on the back foot as well. I mean, the politics have shifted because, yeah, Keir's riding high in the polls, albeit, yeah. um, you know, the, the polls have tightened a little bit. Um, but it's also shifted because the yeah, the government are, are, are so far away. You know, they've annoyed pretty much everyone in the housing sector, you know, from sort of big developers through to housing associations to whoever, that with what they've been doing with the uh, levelling up regeneration bill and the sort of, the way that the... And what they haven't been the, doing uh, with it. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I mean, but I mean, I think this, yeah, the, the dropping of housing targets was a, a really kind of key moment um, because it's had kind of direct and quite well, surprisingly quick consequences in terms of um, you know the the effect on local plans for example um, and the implications for people you know trying to get stuff built has been uh, it's already making things more difficult um, so yeah I, I think I think we've, you know like you said we've talked about it before but the the Tories are you know, have left an open goal and they're moving the goalposts wider and wider <laughs> um, for Labour. And Kia seems more and more confident in terms of stepping into that space and kind of making it as part of a kind of wider, as part of his wider economic argument as well. Um, I, I think it's worth sort of saying that as well, kind of behind the scenes. Um, and I don't know, I, I don't have any sort of special insight as to as to whether this is part of it, but there's been a new um, head of economic policy been appointed in Labour HQ as well, who who has housing explicitly with you know the, within that team, um, and I, I wonder if you know that may be part of it as well, having that kind of extra policy firepower um, and a more senior person doing that might might also be kind of bolstering his confidence in, in what he's willing and able to say and the, the kind of the grounding of it in kind of yeah policy development yeah it also points that that might become sort of a key divide line that he feels that they can capitalize on so it's an interesting insight there Carl so um is there anything else we want to say on this uh, or shall we move on to the the next next bit yep yeah, let's do it um, so, I mean, the question is, could Labour do a deal with the SNP? Uh, Keir Starmer said no. So, I mean, that, that probably, you know, we could, this could be quite a short section. <laughs> no, no, is the answer. Moving on. Citing <laughs> uh, a fundamental disagreement over independence, which I think is probably not, not news to anybody. Um, Stephen Flynn says the uh, indie referendum power would be the price for any deal. Um, and says their job is not to be in government but to secure concessions on devolution. So, uh, sort of, it's one or the other, I suppose, in that respect. Either you're securing concessions on devolution or you're after an indie referendum. It's probably not both because what's the point? Um, 
I think it's also worth noting um, uh, for listeners who will be listening tomorrow, we're recording on Thursday, this tends to go out on Friday, uh, Alex Salmond, former former leader of the SNP, now leader of the ALBA party, I think, is going to be on question time tonight uh, with somebody else from the SNP who is much less well-known and whose name I've forgotten. Uh, <laughs> it'll be interesting. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, I'm sure it'll be an interesting would be an interesting exchange later on. Um, but what do you think, Malcolm? Do you think we're going to do a deal with the SNP, whatever Keir says? Do you think after the election, if that's the maths of the of getting into number 10, is he going to do it? I mean, if it does transpire that Keir Starmer's in a position where he needs to find a deal from somebody, then clearly they're in a strong position to at least negotiate. Now, whether or not Keir decides to do that... He did rule that out completely, citing that fundamental disagreement. Um, this this article came from a an interview that Stephen Flynn did, um, where he basically said he wanted more concessions, but he added in, if we get more powers on energy, if we get more powers on housing, etc., why not powers on, on our constitutional future? So it's the classic sort of same arguments coming from them. Um, but just I thought worth putting in just to say, you know, that it is possible that, you know, the Lib Dems haven't said, I mean, Keir's not said, I think it's obvious that if he needed to try and get a deal with them, he would. I mean, it's quite obvious that he would try that. And the mere fact that he said that he couldn't rule that, or that he wouldn't comment on a hypothetical issue, but he would rule something else out, he walked into that straight away. Um, and maybe that wasn't his, his intention, but that's what he did. So I think it's obvious that the Lib Dems could be in a position where they can ask for, for a lot. Because what they do know is that at the ballot box, they're probably looking at what happened to them in uh, 2010, then 2015, um, was that they paid a heavy price. So they'd be looking to to cash in on some, some big ticket stuff to get that over the line. So certainly Kia will be hoping and praying that the... The, the projections on large majorities come to pass because that's just a headache that he doesn't want. Um, but I do think that if it came to the crunch and they couldn't get the deal with the Lib Dems, you know, to say no, absolutely, w- would he then sit back and let the Conservatives get back in? I don't know. So it's... it's I, I don't distrust his completely ruling it out, but I think politics is, is always scenarios that play out. And we could definitely see Stephen Flynn said nothing, you know, really, you know, crazily new here. But it's, there's definitely scenarios that I think Labour behind the scenes will be would have at least thought about it. But what do you? Yeah, no. I mean, yeah. I mean, you have to think about it. Um, I, if I was doing that scenario planning, I would be planning to tell the SNP to take a running jump, um, and and basically work. From a position of being a minority administration, because yeah, the the SNP, because if when you're at that point, the SNP basically have to force an election. They have to either let the Tories in or force an election, and they're probably doing it from a position of weakness. Um, They they will take the blame if they bring down what would have been a Labour government. Um, and I think the politics of that subsequent election would be bad for them. So I would 
call their bluff at that point. The difficulty you have is that it wouldn't be very stable and you'd have to probably plan for an election within the space of a couple of years. Yeah. But I I think that doing a deal with the SNP is too toxic um, politically to, yeah, to even consider it uh, in any real sense, you do it on a vote by vote basis. You may give, you may promise some more powers, but I don't think there could ever be a kind of coalition or or kind of full deal with the SNP. It'd be a supply, you know, supply and confidence, but you know, not even quite that. I suspect. Um, yeah, and on the Lib Dems, the Lib Dems, but will have. I don't think they'll have very much negotiating power really they'll try and push for PR and Keir will Keir will hopefully and I think should say no <laughs> to that because it would it would basically give yeah the, the, there's just no there's no reason to give that concession um, but that's that's the thing that they'll want it's the thing they've said they wanted before they've stopped asking for it at the moment because I think, well, I don't know why, but if they if if they're sensible, it's because they know it's bad electorally for them to be just talking about PR in the original election. Um, and I think, yeah, Keir, I think Keir's played it fine in terms of the politics of it. The thing I would say, and I think hopefully he knows, is do everything possible to avoid. Uh, talk of a coalition of any coalitions in advance of an election it's not unpopular with most voters but it is often unpopular with the voters that you need mm. <laughs> um the tories have used it in election after election particularly the idea of a co- you know coalition of chaos with the smp um i think it's probably less potent than it's ever been given how unpopular the <laughs> conservatives are and the various coalitions and deals that they've done in what in their time of office in office, but it's just not worth it. It takes you away from talking about the things that people actually care about. Um, you know, the economy, the NHS, um, investment in policing, you know, even you know, defense, anything is better to talk about than deals, backroom deals and coalitions in advance of an election, I would say. But also it'll affect you know, the, the Labour are looking at making good amounts of gains in Scotland. So you don't want to give the Scottish voters a reason not to want to vote for you. So to having that kind of vote for us because it's going to actually make a material difference. We can win a majority. We can do, you know, it's not just a, you know, an independence protest vote or there's more issues to think about. Um, I think it'll be a big part of the thinking as well because Labour are sort of projected to win between 12 and 25 seats at the moment based on current polling. So lots of seats that maybe even a couple of years ago were considered just lost for good yeah. and that used to be considered the safest of the safe seats may well come back. Um, we, we could well see Douglas Alexander making a return to Parliament after nearly a decade away. And he yeah. looked like he would never leave you know, until he was retired. So uh, there could be a lot of familiar faces coming back. Um, selections of people. in there, why not? I wouldn't quite go that far, but I mean, you're talking some, you know, I think we'll see a few people making a comeback. I always thought Jim Murphy might come back, but apparently not at the minute. He's, uh, well, he's got his own 
uh, lobbying company, isn't he? He's tapping himself everywhere at the moment. So I mean, yeah, I think it, I think he'd, he'd be good to come back, but his yeah, he didn't have a great time as Scottish Labour leader, did he? So he might not be might not be keen. But I think I think that what we're seeing is you know we may look back you know in years to come at this sort of very odd period between 2015 and the next general election as to when Scottish politics went a bit weird. And then it may come back to what we would consider the old normal in some ways. But, I mean, there's a long way to go before that happens. But, you know, the SNP, it was always going to be very difficult for them to keep winning elections on one issue. And Sturgeon made a a valiant effort to, to try that again. And that's sort of contributed, one of many factors that contributed to her downfall was that she said, oh, next time it'll be a referendum on independence because in order to maintain what they've got, which is basically a blanket wipeout of seats, like they have to keep making it about independence. They can't not do that. That is everything to them. The moment they start talking about politics and issues, other options come into play. But if you can keep making independence the only thing that matters, then quite literally they will keep winning. But that was always going to be really hard to do that. And it's it's looking now like Scottish a lot of Scottish voters who maybe were minded in that direction a while back are now thinking about other things, which is good news for for Labour, who used to have these seats, and bad news for the SNP, who want to hold them. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I don't have any special insight into the minds of Scottish voters, but certainly, if I was a voter, even somebody that cared about independence, at some point you'd go, well. Yeah, I'm, I'm sick of these Tories. <laughs> Let's yeah, try at least try something else. We're well, not going to get honest, independence Carl, anytime soon. <laughs> in that scenario you mentioned, you're absolutely right. In that scenario you mentioned, you would have been voting this way for nearly ten years now. Yeah. For nothing, you know, you had a referendum, didn't work, lost, and you know, then well, that was before. But then you've you've made this sort of commitment to this particular cause. Nowhere near getting it, and you have to think even. Even if they vote for Labour thinking that that could eventually head in some different direction, they've got to at least be aware that the direction they've committed to in Westminster has delivered a lot of MPs, but very little else. Yeah, definitely. So in conclusion... Probably a norm, but it's worth chatting about, isn't it? (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) And we'll probably chat about it again, and we'll probably talk about the Lib Dems again. Uh, whether we want to or not, <laughs> might might even bring in the Greens at some point. You know, give them a little, give them a showing. They did well in the locals. Why not? Why not? I mean, there's lots of reasons why not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Actually, an interesting point that we that we haven't scheduled, but given the sort of labour gains in Brighton, do you think Caroline Lucas's seat could be under threat? Maybe. Um, I don't. I suspect not. I think she's probably quite well dug in there, um, and she, they'll throw she'd everything at it. Probably almost certainly get it. a peerage, wouldn't she, if she did leave? So I don't know. I don't know because the they've got some peers already, and if you don't have any MPs, what's the what's the impetus to give you a? I mean, you might. I mean, maybe because she's. I think she's. Well, she's not particularly. She's not disliked anyway. I think she's reasonably well liked in. She has yeah, a majority of 19,000... She's. I mean, to be fair, she has 19,940 majority. So you're probably right. Uh, it's pr- 
probably safe, but I imagine that will be shrunk significantly. But a yeah. loss would be a big change. I mean, she, the turnout was seventy three point four percent last time, um, and you know, Green's got a ooh, how much of the vote? Fifty seven point two percent of the vote. So that's a that's a lot. Yeah, um, exactly, and it's just not worth. It's not worth the fight for the Labour Party when there's a lot of other seats that need to be won, whether it's in Scotland or the Red Wall or the Midlands or the South West or the South East or, you know, most of the country. Um, so I think that's probably going to be low on the list of of gains on election night. Agreed. I just thought I'd throw that in there. <laughs> just trying to throw a curveball into the agenda. Um, <laughs> So, but, so next we're going to talk about fears of a catastrophic event that could destroy Parliament. Uh, I think you're going to have to talk about this, Malcolm, because I haven't read this this week. Right. Well, um, quite an emotive title uh, that actually doesn't mean quite what maybe it sounds like it means. Clickbait. For, yeah. It was a BBC News clickbait, which you don't get a lot. I mean, fair play. I mean, you know, so basically the Public Accounts Committee have said, and they've been talking about this for years, they've said that there is a critical need, I quote, to restore the Palace of Westminster, which is in a very sorry state. And it is, you go there, I I visit, usually you see it monthly, roughly, and there's always a a massive amount of scaffolding that is on it um, in various states of repair. And £2 million a week, apparently, has been spent on repairs. So that's £104 a year is just being spent on keeping the thing standing there. So in terms of how much it would cost to, quote-unquote, fix it fully, um, that would be huge. And there has been estimates running into the tens and billions of pounds, and you're talking about decanting for up to 10 years while everything's ripped out. I mean, one of the the thing that always sticks in my mind about this sort of thing is I remember seeing a there's a, a room or a, a place where there's loads of electrical wires, literally like three trunk sized reams of them and someone said what do they do and they said we actually don't know we just have to start pulling things out and seeing what switches off <clears throat> because some of them might not even be used anymore so it's just absolutely like chaotic so with this in mind a UK parliamentary spokesperson said um, and we can put the title to one side that basically they were saying it's absolutely busted to bits um, say that, and I quote a UK parliamentary spokesperson said Last year, members of both houses agreed a more integrated approach to restoration, prioritising safety-critical work. The Restoration Renewal Programme Board is shortlisting options for the restoration and members in both houses are expected to vote on the way forward later this year. Now, we have heard that before. There are some tough decisions. So I I posed a question for us to, to discuss, Carl. Is it time to decant from Parliament... That's been an option that's been looked at in the past. Not well received. People didn't want to leave. Or the nuclear option, I suppose. Do we leave, restore, and never come back? And it's left as a a museum to politics in years gone by. Does politics need a more modern setting? Because there's lots of stuff about how the the ambience of Parliament affects how we interact and how we how we do politics. Um, I'll let you come in on that, and then I'll I'll give my opinions as well. So here we are. Um, yeah, I think the 
MPs need to stop pissing and moaning about it, if I'm honest. Um, <laughs> they should definitely decant, if nothing else, because um, why not? Um, and I have, I've got no objections whatsoever to Parliament moving to Yorkshire. I think that would be a, 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 a great thing to do for all round. It will take, take Parliament to the centre of the country, you know, to... So yeah, you could take it to Leeds, you could take it to Sheffield, take it down to take it down to Barnsley, you know, do something for the the Red Wall. Malcolm's sprouting at me now, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, you know, I I think part, the chamber is small, you know, not everybody can fit in it uh, <laughs> when it's full. You can't sit down. So I think in the, in terms of a more modern setting, yes, I don't have a particular view on. I think you can kind of over-egg the idea of the the kind of, you know, all the stuff you talked about, about uh, and the, how the shape of the chamber affects debate and things like that. But, I, you know, it's I think we should... It's a great building um, that we can keep and use for things. Maybe they can visit it a couple of times a year. Um, but, it's quite, you know, it would be good for tourists to use we can use it for other stuff if we want but it doesn't need to have be a working that particular building doesn't need to be our working parliament i'm sure there's lots of other places that would do uh, at least as good a job from my perspective what do you think um i mean as you know from all the nice messages i send you every week i'm an old romantic and i <laughs> like I, I i sort of have a it's a heart to head thing for me um I liked, I liked, I'm, I don't know, I, I, I kind of hear myself saying it and think, oh, God. But I like the fact that of the place, I think you can't go into Central Lobby and stand right in the middle and look left and see the, the Commons and look right and see the Lords and not feel the history, not feel... Like I've always said, if you, if you stand there and you feel nothing, you're not really interested in politics. And as somebody who not only we've been elected, we've been, you know involved we even do a podcast on it like i feel like we are the one percent of the one percent of the one percent who actually really care about this so um i kind of get the place i do feel though that we've got to approach it from where we are which is the place is absolutely in a state um and the safety critical work has been you know you're talking like 100 million a year and we found out today that 160 million was spent on queen elizabeth ii's funeral uh, with figures released and people are like oh that's a lot of money but we're spending that almost that amount a year on just just standing still um which doesn't feel like a brilliant spend and you know yes the costs will be huge to restore it we're not going to demolish it let's be honest so like they're going to have to make that decision at some point that they're going to fix it and do it right and this has been going on for a long time i think i think they probably do have to leave I do think about it, we're obviously both involved in public affairs, Carl, and the impact on that industry, which is very much London-based, would be huge. Now, I'm not saying that would even be a consideration, but it would be a very significant shake-up of how, how the private sector integrates with the, with the public sector. In terms of you know locations, be great, probably be great for me living in the northeast. But I think in terms of of that industry, it would be really weird and a big shuffle about the how that works. I'm not quite sure to what extent, if at all, 
that would be a consideration. But having experienced that kind of like really London centric thing, I just wonder how that would work in practice if if things moved around. Obviously, there is organisations doing that elsewhere, but like that would that feels like a big thing to me that I may not have even been aware of if before I was in the industry for a, a couple of years ago. Um, we can't keep spending two million a week on standing still. It's ridiculous. Um, I think they've just got to bite the bullet and spend the money. And you're going to get a lot. And the problem they have is a lot of the that like anti-political sentiment that's out there and that visceral sort of oh politics. That's that it does exist. That'll come out in a big way when we say right, we're going to spend this on this big building. That's that's because it's our building. It's our home. It's politics. And people are instantly going to go with some credibility. What about education? What about health? So they're going to end up having to borrow a lot of money to do this. Um, and I think they're going to have to end up doing it, but it's going to be really gnarly and difficult to, to actually pull it off. Yeah, I mean, I I think, yeah. I, I mean, I, I guess, I don't think I've got anything to add, really. I think you're right. That, I mean, I like the building. I think it's probably good to preserve it. Um, you should probably invest the money, but I don't think MPs and peers need to be working in it while that happens. Um, and they need to move out, whether that's temporarily or permanently. Um, and there are ways and means you can find to to pay for that. Um, you know, it is a big tourist attraction. You could probably make more use of that. Um, you could certainly make more use of it if MPs and peers weren't there all the time. <laughs> it's a very weird thing because as you walk around, like, you know, as a tourist or as a visitor, you sort of what's always fascinated me is when you go from Portcullis House and you go through that underground but you've got to have a pass holder with you mm-hmm. but you walk from that up towards the Westminster Hall and the Commons and you're constantly passing people that you recognise you know oh there's Jacob Rees-Mogg there's so and so there's so and so and you may well walk past the Prime Minister with his entourage sometimes you know it's it's just a working place and it's it's very odd and it's unique and I think that's part of the like the, the romance of it really um, and I say I'd be, I'd be really sad if it went, but I I couldn't argue with it. Um, but I do one thing I hated, which was I don't like the idea that we lose the sort of nice surroundings of you know like I like it, you you know me I've said it before I love a good chamber <laughs> I like a nice nicely set out chamber um, and I remember when I've said it before when when Durham was going to move we had just a rubbishy little room. And I, I felt that like it was just literally a room that was going to be where the meetings were going to take place. And I was like, you're just sort of playing into this kind of anti-political hate. Like, we need to... There's nothing wrong with keeping these nice settings. Uh, but again, I think... I, I just wonder... It'd be very interesting when they vote on it. I wonder if they shouldn't take this out of politics in some ways, Carl. Because the, you're asking... Basically, for a lot of people, particularly in the House of Lords... You're asking them to say we're leaving here and never coming back because at their age they won't be there. You know, see, so it's difficult though. It's like it's a practical thing where they're going to be like, we're going to leave here and never come back. It changes the entire culture of their peerage, of their status. It, you know, it's a lovely. I mean, if you've ever been in the Lords, like if I got a peerage, I'd be, I'd walk in there and think, God, this is what I do. This is amazing. But you know, so it's a, it's a big ask to get them to to vote to leave. I think. So I, I just wonder how that'll actually happen, but it'll be interesting to see well, what they decide. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I don't think 
MPs and peers should make the decision, but unfortunately, that's we live in a democracy, and that's one of the things I, that yeah, they I'm are. Yeah, I'm not saying I'm not advocating well. for an end if there of democracy. Was, but... If there was some ex- if there was some executive <laughs> powers that could be used that could get around it, then. But yeah, I uh, uh, the one I guess the the one thing that's worth saying that we haven't touched on is that it's not. There are lots of places around the world where the political centre isn't the economic centre, you know, isn't the big city. So if you look at this, I mean, the States probably isn't the best example because it's such a cute, you know, it's the size of a continent. Um, but Washington is not, you know, the president and the Congress are not in New York, which is the the big, big city. And where whereas we have those two things combined. Similarly in Australia, you know, Canberra is the political centre, Sydney is, you know, the, the big city, is the city everyone knows. Um, so I, I think there's not, I don't think separating those two things is the end of the world by any means, but it, is a, it would be a big shift for us because it's never, you know, it's never, it's never happened. But um, why not it give it a go? Yeah, it feels big. And that's why it's taking us so long to sort because, you know, thinking about when I remember this first getting discussed, we could have been 10 years into a full re- restore by now. And they were saying, oh, this might be, you know, not finished till 2030. Well, that would only be seven years away. Like, time does pass pretty quick, sadly. Um, Maybe Keir Starmer will bite the bullet. That'll be it. I don't think it'll be in anyone's manifesto, but, you know, that's an interesting point, actually, that, you know, this isn't something that is going to sit with voters as a, as a pledge or whatever. So... Um, yeah, we'll see how it pans out. I'm really, it'd be something I'm really, I know I'm a nerd for it, but I'll be interested to see what they decide because it's a, it's a big test for politics because it ain't going to be popular, whatever they do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, someone will moan about it. I mean, it happened to see, because he can't uh, move City Hall um, to save money and uh, a load of the Assembly members moaned about that. Yeah. But he did it, so <laughs> it's possible. Um, and then it, finally, although there's a couple of things I might mention just before we finish, but uh, our la- last big ticket item is no fault evictions um, are to be banned. The renters' reform bill has finally been introduced um, after several years. Um, me and Malcolm were talking about it before uh, before we came on. Uh, this was, I think, uh, I mean, it's been campaigned for for a long time uh, generation rent in particular um have been a big kind of campaign group behind behind pushing for this um it first sort of um was mooted by the government after i think the lib dems put in a uh private members bill um and then the government sort of accepted the principle uh labor was obviously supporting it as well um, but it was quite a long time ago, and it was expected, you know, that this was, at the time it was touted as a big win, and it's taken years and years for this bit of legislation to come through. Um, <clears throat> but finally, it is. It's good, and it looks like it's going to happen. Um, and it would scrap Section Twenty One evictions, which just means that a uh, landlord can evict uh, any tenant for no reason at all which I think broadly is a good thing. Um, I think there's some worries, uh, and again, we talked about this before, uh, that there might be some loopholes for landlords um, to to still 
be able to evict people for um, what are quite thin reasons. Um, and it'd be interesting to see how that actually, you know, once it, the bill's debated and amendments are pushed and all that, how that actually plays out. Um, there is definitely a, a kind of push from government to give power, extra powers to landlords to evict people um, for reasons of antisocial behaviour, which um, probably is, you know, it's not ideal, but it's probably necessary if you haven't got um, the kind of Section 21 powers. So, yeah, what do you think, Malcolm? Is this something you've been uh, keeping track of? Yeah, I mean, I've been really interested in this as someone who who worked as a as a letting agent in the private sector uh, back at the end of 2005 till the I think it was middle of 2010. So quite a long stint in a in a small agency that grew uh, to about 400 managed properties at its its peak. So um, it was really an interesting uh, time in my in my career was to, to work there, and we saw everything from. Uh, obviously, a lot of Section 21 notices, a lot of Section 8 notices, which were based on tenancy contract breaches, a lot of dealing with um, landlords, a variety type, those who were very wealthy and had huge portfolios to people who probably couldn't afford a house. It was back before the credit crunch where, you know, you heard, I remember speaking to a landlord once who said, you know, I buy a house every six months because I can't really afford it, but you're never going to lose money with houses. Um, don't know what happened to them after the credit crunch, but presumably that was it. You know that it was interesting that kind of British cultural thing of put your money in bricks and mortar, lad. You know was was kind of really took a beating, and and like any investment, there's risk can go up and down, but it was almost seen as a you know the super safe historically way of investing money. Um, so I've been waiting for this since I knew the government were bringing it in. Um, Labour have said that they sort of broadly support most of it. Um, because they were too going to make various pledges in relation to Section 21 no-fault evictions. And Dan Carden last year, uh, Liverpool MP, had had a debate on this that I engaged with, um, talking about wanting to get rid of those no-fault evictions. So um, it's there's a lot... It didn't feel like a, a conservative bill <laughs> in terms of the direction of travel. Um, it seems like it's almost... Are we moving into that phase, Carl, that's like... Let's pinch your best ideas because we were going to do them anyway, and looking for like ways of getting almost taking the the attraction away from a Labour manifesto in some ways. Um, I don't. If I'm honest, I don't think so because um, this has been so. It's been delayed so much. I think the government have got to a point where mm. yeah, they've said they're going to do this for so long they kind of had to do it before the election or it would be politically yeah it'd be politically you know even more damaging for them than than what they're already going through yeah it would show that they're unable to deliver on what are kind of quite key parts of their manifesto i think the the strength of the labor party has probably helped with that you know the fact that like you say they they have reason to um, to want to be able to show that they're delivering is one of you know, Rishi Sunak's things is to try, you know, it's obviously this doesn't fall within his five priorities, but one of his, the kind of impetus behind what he's do, is doing as Prime Minister is to try and show that he's delivering. But I think this, it had to come about, really, or it would have looked really bad. 
Um, it'll be interesting to see the extent of, uh, as the bill passes, how far it ends up going and whether there are amendments that, you know, because I think Labour will probably push quite a few amendments on this, <coughs> how that kind of plays out and whether there are kind of further concessions from the government, whether they actually end up going further than they intended. Because um, it's also likely to be sitting a lot, you know, the, this is uh, one piece of reform. They've also said they're going to bring in leasehold reform that we talked about uh, last week, later in the year as well. Um, so there's going to be some not insignificant um, reforms off the back of what is already a massive levelling up and regeneration bill. And so I think it would be interesting to see how all of that plays out because the and we haven't really talked about it that much, but the the lerb as it's called in the trade, um, is probably is looking like it will end up. Well, at the moment, I think it's the third most amended bill that's ever gone through the Commons. It's um, but it's still at committee stage, um, and the committee stage keeps getting extended. So it could end up being the most amended bill, which probably means there'll be some quite significant negotiations with the government and the opposition um, on that. So it would be all, I think, all of those things happening, um, all in the kind of housing space, all with, you know, quite a lot of politics attached to them, I think will be, it'll be a kind of interesting time to see you know, what happens in the lead to the next election or whether some of this stuff, you know, just falls because it doesn't quite pass before Rishi pulls the plug and goes to the country. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the only thing I would add, Carl, it feels to me like this is a significant enough bill where there will be a lot of jousting. I, I don't expect it to be smooth sailing, even though Labour have said broad support. I do expect it to be lots of amendments. I think the sentiments behind it are fairly tepid in terms of something I wouldn't think there's a lot of controversy, but any bill like this, I think, will be interesting to see what the Tory right do in relation to effects of landlords. Not much noise yet, but I expect that to come as well. Yeah, I think I'm I'm kind of... I'm I'm really interested in the politics of this because there is a chance... for, from the Labour side, as much as this has been something that the Labour Party has pushed for and genuinely cares about, this is a this is a difficult thing to do, particularly from a Labour perspective, because the party would want um, to push further than than what the government's doing. But if the government do this and it gets through, whether with Labour support or not. It means it's another thing that, that that Labour don't have to do with their first term. It's sort of done to some degree, and it's probably it's probably done enough. It may be that you know, like I say, Labour would want to go further, but if this can get done now, that's probably useful for Labour's legislative agenda because there will be a lot to do in certainly in the first parliamentary session, but in the in a first term Labour government. So yeah, I'm um, yeah, I wanna see what happens with this yeah so we'll keep an eye on certainly uh, as the weeks pass <laughs> um, so I think that brings us to the end uh, one thing I was going to mention just as we're um, 
just as well, even which I think we'll probably talk about uh, next week. But because we talked so much about trains uh, at the start, um, there's been some breaking news just before we started recording that Rishi Sunak has dropped Boris Johnson's Great British Railways project, uh, according to the Times, which oh, by wow. which he means he's dropped the the legislation that and the the legislation that kind of underpins all of that is not going to be in the next uh, King's speech. Um, I think, yeah, we'll we'll probably talk about it more next week uh, because I think there's probably a bit of nuance in that some of it might be able to be done without legislation. And what does um, the Boris supporters do, Carl? So that'll be interesting <laughs> to see how they react well, they'll to probably have, they'll probably have They'll probably have another really tedious conference, won't they? We haven't talked about that. I mean, we, we should probably bring that back. Um, the yeah, the, very, the national... Oh, just they've got uh, uh, anyway. Uh, let, we'll talk about it next. Let, we'll we'll talk about it next week. I mean, we probably should have had it on today, but we've we've had enough to talk about. Are we? Uh, are we? <laughs> just a quick question, Carl. Are we missing a week next week, or is that the week after next? I can't remember. Uh, the week after next, because oh, okay, cool. we're, we're missing. We're the the week of recess will be missing. It's mm-hmm. not recess next week. Because uh, for uh, I'm sure listeners don't need to know I'm, this. I'm but on I'm leave going next away week, but I will be here, so I look forward to seeing you all then. Uh, but yeah, just not 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 on leave from the podcast. We don't we don't no. give we don't have proper employment rights here, uh, <laughs> or pay or anything. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah I just wanted to mention that before we wrap up and also um, uh, one other thing which is that um, the Tories are running a uh, a lottery at the moment uh, one of the things that political parties do is they run these kind of different raffle lottery type things sometimes Labour sometimes send me an email to say do you want to enter this thing and you can win I don't know five grand or whatever it is well, the Tories are doing it. You can win ten grand, um, and a ten-minute conversation with Rishi Sunak. That is the first prize. Ten grand and a ten-minute conversation with Rishi Sunak. If it was a one-minute conversation, prize, I would probably get it. But uh... I was going to say that I was going to say the second prize is ten grand and a twenty-minute conversation with Rishi Sunak. <laughs> <laughs> like it. Um... But yeah, it's, it's just a weird. That's a bit of an odd thing to do, isn't it? That's, that's strange. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Tories tend to tend not to use these sort of crowdfunding things to generate money. They just get a massive wedge of money off one person that you know completely blasts any sort of lottery effort. But yeah, interesting, <laughs> uh, interesting thing. Um, I'm sure you know twenty minutes. Was it? It's a ten minute conversation. A ten minute conversation. It's not a lot, yeah. is it really? I mean, you know, they could have given him like, you know, twenty minutes or half an hour or something. I mean, goodness me. Ten minutes. I mean, I, don't, I just don't know what I can't imagine how awkward that conversation's gonna be. That reminds I've, me I've of a seen... Labour MP who I shall not name, who's not a Labour MP anymore, and it's not the one I worked for, um was gave out on her uh, CLP dinner. Uh, a raffle prize that was dinner at her house uh, where she cooked them Sunday dinner <laughs> and they started to auction it to see how nobody came for it so, so her constituency support officer bought it because <laughs> no one bid for it 
Yeah, you don't don't do that to yourself if you're an MP. Put it like you say, put it in the raffle. Then somebody else does get that. It was literally like, is anybody going to open the bidding? Can I have twenty pounds? Can I have five pounds? And the guy just went forty. He's like sold. <laughs> but I wasn't there. It wasn't the MP I worked for. Just to make that clear. I shall name no names. It wasn't you. It wasn't you. And it wasn't me. It definitely 100% was someone else. No longer an MP. Um, And I shall, as John Burke would say, I shall leave it there. (laughs) That's a a niche impression. Um, That was quite good. uh, um, Yeah. And that just about brings us to the end of the podcast for another week. Malcolm, do you have any final words before we wrap up? I think it's probably best that I don't, so I'm going to say no. But thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time.